You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, church. Good morning, early service. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. Um, I was thinking about this this week. 1 Corinthians, this section of 1 Corinthians is like uh, being at the top of a um, you know, double black mountain and you are getting off the lift and you're ready to start to ski down. And you know that there's like so many obstacles that the chances are pretty high that, uh, that you're not going to make it down the mountain without a giant yard sale. Um, and that's what this passage, this section of 1 Corinthians is, is like, including this text today. You, you probably, uh, even as Dave was reading that text, you, you felt the, the danger or even the threat uh, of one of those obstacles as we try and get down the mountain. And we're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to get back into this text in a minute. But before we do, I want to tell you about a couple of things that are important in the life of this church that are coming up. I want to make sure that you're informed about those things. So we'll just pause 1 Corinthians for just a second. The first thing I want to tell you about is Love the Rock. Uh, Love the Rock is coming up this Saturday. What is Love the Rock? If you're new with us at Redeemer, Love the Rock is one of my favorite days of the year. It's where uh, many churches in Round Rock come together. We often say the Big C Church, the Capital C Church in Round Rock, where we come together and we serve the city together. We want to put the love of Christ and the unity of Christ on display through uh, brothers and sisters, even among different congregations coming together to meet the needs of the city of Round Rock. We've been doing this since about 2016, and, um, and it has been so cool to see how God has given the church collectively in Round Rock unity and favor with the city. So if you don't have anything going on this Saturday morning, you can shoot that QR code right now that's back here. Just shoot that QR code. You can go to, on our church app or on our church website, and you can find information as well. Uh, you can register for Love the Rock. I, I was looking at it earlier this morning. Um, almost all of the service projects are already covered, which is awesome to see that uh, the body of Christ is being mobilized to serve. Um, but there are, there's still a need for the beautification project. So you'll see that when you click the link. And so that's like family-friendly, easy stuff. That's like spreading mulch and pulling weeds at a park or at a local school. Um, so you can get signed up. You can sign up with your family. You can sign up with friends from Redeemer. You can sign up on your own and just show up and meet some other Christians uh, from other churches in our city. It's, it's a great uh, thing that's happening. I hope to see you there uh, at Love the Rock. Uh, second thing I want to tell you about really quickly, I want to make sure you know about this. There's been a lot going on this fall, and I don't want you to miss this in all of our communication. We have a class coming up starting October the 22nd that we're calling Parenting in a Secular World. The elders here at Redeemer, we made a decision at the end of last year that in 2023, we really wanted to make a significant investment in families, in the nuclear family. And so we did a marriage retreat back in the spring that was trying to sow and strengthen marriages in this church. And then this fall, we are doing this parenting class. Um, you can go on our app right now. You can click on the link. You can see there's going to be four sessions um, parenting in a secular world. We're going to talk about what is secularism and how is it distinct, this kind of moment that we're in as the church, navigating that and, and teaching our children. Uh, in a hectic world, this, we are as busy as we've ever been. Uh, in a digital world, how do we parent navigate this digital Babylon that we live in? And then in a sexualized world, how do we uh, teach our children what the Bible is so clear about, the goodness of Christian sexuality? And so it's going to be a great class. You, you don't have to be a parent to come. Uh, anybody is welcome, so come and join us. But I want to make sure you don't miss that, that you uh, get registered and signed up for that class. It's going to be a real gift uh, to this church. Okay, 
Well, if you are not in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want, to, I want to invite you to meet me there to get your Bible open. This is an important one today, so I want you to have your Bible out. If you're new with us, let me catch you up quickly on where we are in our study of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter. This is to a, an early church, one of his earliest churches that he planted. It is a church made up of all first-generation Christians, and this church is really messy. Like if you've been, you, maybe you've been to a church and you're like, that church is messy. This church is really messy. They are getting a lot of things wrong. And we've been wading our way through that over this year. It, most recently, we've seen that uh, since chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to bring renovation to the Corinthian church corporate gatherings. So they are really making a mess of the church gathering, specifically around the Lord's Supper. He's corrected that, making sure that they are taking the Lord's Supper in the right way. Um, They've made a mess of spiritual gifts. They've been uninformed about spiritual gifts, and then so therefore they're using spiritual gifts in the wrong way. We looked at that, a lot of that last week. And when we get to our text today, what Paul is doing is he's really tying a bow around this entire section in order to reinforce his main point. Now, There is a temptation with this text to get lost in the weeds of this text and miss the main point. And we're going to deal with the weeds of the text. We're going to get into those things. But what I want to do is I want to make sure that we don't miss the main point because it's the main point that he's been making since chapter 11. This is his main argument. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you an image that I think might help us make sure that we don't miss the main point. Are you ready to use your imagination? early service. Hopefully you've had enough coffee. Are you ready for this? Okay. I want you to imagine with me that behind me is a beautiful stained glass window. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, maybe one day uh, we will get to do some remodel. We're thankful for this building. Maybe one day we'll get to do some remodel. Imagine with me a beautiful stained glass window back here. Think of how powerful this would be, right? It would be a focal point in our worship. You wouldn't be looking at me. You wouldn't be looking at the uh, old cheap paneling that is back there behind us. You would, this focal point of this beautiful image. Now, let's imagine it even further. Imagine that this beautiful stained glass window is depicting an image of Jesus and his return, his glorious return, Jesus coming in the clouds, right? And as we gather in worship every week, as we hear and as we sing and as we fellowship and as we take the Lord's Supper, it is reminding us of our glorious future, the day of Jesus's return. It's reminding us of what a day that will be when God gathers his people into the fullness of his presence. And I want to ask you to think about this. What is it that the presence of God brings to his people? What is it? I think that you could sum it up with two words, peace and order. Peace and order. That the presence of God, when God's people gather in God's presence, when they're gathered into God's presence, we experience the peace that God gives. He calms our confusion and our chaos. We are gathered into his order. When Jesus comes again, he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and he will set things right, bring justice and order and righteousness to the world. You see, the point that Paul is making in our text today is that when God's people are gathered into God's presence, there should not be confusion and there should not be chaos, but there should be shalom. There should be a taste. We should have a taste. And even though this gathering is just an appetizer taste of what that day will be, when God gathers his people into his presence, we experience peace 
and order, not confusion and chaos. In other words, when the church is gathered into the presence of God in worship of God, our worship of this God must not distract from who he is, but it must honor and reflect who he is. Are you with me? This has been Paul's main point since chapter 11. He makes this very clear in verse 33. Look back at the text. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And so as we worship him, we should worship him in a way that reflects and honors who he is. Verse 40, verse 40. All things, all of our worship, should be done with decency and in order. He's a God of order. Do you see it? This is Paul's main point. And so as we work our way back through the text, we're going to get into the weeds. But I want to show us three principles, three things that Paul is saying to help us in our worship honor and reflect Jesus. Okay, let me pray for us. We'll get back into it. Father, we thank you for this space that you have carved out for us as a grace to encounter you, to be gathered up together in your presence, to hear your word, to sing your praise, to remember what is ultimately true, to have our focal point be not on our circumstances or our situations or even on ourselves, but to have our focus and our focal point be you and what you've done, and what you've promised, and what you will do upon your return. We thank you that you gift us with the grace of the gathered church, and I pray that as we walk through your word today that you would speak to us. Just say simply, God, we want you here in this space. We need you in this space. We invite your presence as we open your word. We open our ears to you, and we ask humbly that you would speak to us, and you would meet us in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Three principles to help us honor and reflect Jesus in our worship. The first is this. Worship that honors and reflects Christ tells the gospel story. Um, there is nothing worse than gathering with the church and not hearing the gospel. Amen? There's nothing worse than gathering with God's people and not hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what God has really done in real time, and real history, that forever has changed everything for those who put their faith and trust in him. The message of the gospel is the content of the church. There's no other content of the church but the gospel. If the church had a book, it does, and it had a table of contents, it does, uh, it would say the gospel on every page, because it does. The gospel is the content of the church from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to look back with me at verse 26. We see this, it's subtle, but it's here. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he says, what then? So in conclusion, he's summarizing this whole section. What, uh, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He's talking about the content of the gathering. And he says that the content of worship ought to be for building up. Everything that we do exists to build up. I want you to know that building up is Paul's lingo for maturing in the gospel. Everything that we ought to do ought to mature us or strengthen us in the gospel, in God's good news for our lives. Paul says, when you come together, let all things be done in your singing, in your teaching, in your speaking, in your sharing. Let it all be centered on Christ, building up in Christ. One thing I love about this verse in particular is that we get a glimpse into what an early church 
worship gathering would have entailed. Um, It's fun to think about this. The early church's gatherings would have looked different in a lot of ways than even what we do today. It would have taken on a different form and a different shape. And it's important to acknowledge that, right? I mean, first of all, the earliest churches didn't have buildings like most churches, many churches in our context do today. Uh, Even there's churches, brothers and sisters in different parts of the globe today that don't have buildings. And so their gatherings look different than ours do. The early churches would have met in homes. Um, uh, usually the largest, the largest home in the community would host. And so you can maybe think about who that is in this church. Uh, in those days, we're like, well, whether you like it or not, we're all coming over to worship. Uh, that's, that would have been the picture. Um, these homes would have held at most probably 40 to 45 people, maybe, maybe more if they were spilling outside of the, uh, the common areas of the home, outside into public space. And so the size dynamics of the early church were different than ours today, certainly. Um, their gatherings also would have been a lot longer than ours are today. We have the luxury and the opportunity to gather in freedom in many other different ways. We gather throughout the week in homes. I love walking into coffee shops and seeing you guys gather together around the Bible. Um, we're able to keep up with each other through uh, text messaging and phone calls and social media to stay connected as God's people. They wouldn't have had this luxury then. And so their gatherings were much longer than ours are today, which meant a lot more opportunity for people to share and to speak, people to serve and to use their gifts and to meet needs. And so we must remember that the early church gathering, it took on different form because it was a different culture and a different time and a different custom. But what I love about this text is not only does it remind us that their gathering was a bit different than ours is today in its form, but it was very similar to ours and it ought to be similar in every age in the sense of its content. I want you to see that the substance, the content of our worship ought not ever change. It must always be the gospel. When the church gathers, the church sings, and the gospel is our song. I love that we did that this morning, that we sang the gospel so clearly, truths of the gospel. Paul says here, when you come together and you bring a hymn, let it be for the building up, building up in the gospel. The church sings, and singing in our worship is both a ministry of the word and it is a means of offering. In other words, as we sing, we are hearing and being reminded and being instructed in what's true and we're also offering something back to God in worship. I love Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, Paul says this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, And singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And we see that kind of double, dual role of singing. When the church gathers, we sing, and the gospel is our song, and the gospel instructs us, and our singing instructs us and builds us up, and it gives us the opportunity to give back to God praise and thanksgiving from our hearts. And so we see that when the church gathers, it sings, the gospel is our song. And then we also see in this verse that when the church gathers, it learns. It learns, and the gospel is our teacher. The gospel is our teacher. The, the, the word, God's word comes through different vessels and in different ways, but the gospel is our content. It is our teacher. This is a core element of the church's worship, even from its inception. Acts 2.42 tells us that the earliest Christians, the very first Christians, what did they do? They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. When the ter- church gathers, it learns. I want you to think about this. The Corinthian church, they didn't have the Bible as we do today. 
What did they have? They had the Old Testament. They had the apostolic teaching. So they had what was delivered to them by Paul, the core message of the gospel and the way of life of the gospel. They had words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a big part of 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and, and then later on over time, they began to get the instruction of the, of the apostles through the New Testament letters. And for generations, it's been God's word that has built up and instructed and taught God's people, teaching and instruction, building up in the gospel. It's a key component of our Christian worship. And so we bring hymns, we, we sing together, we learn together when we gather. Also, we see in 1 Corinthians that when the church gathers, it eats. It gathers around a meal, the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper was central, a central part of Christian worship in the New Testament. And it's not mentioned here directly in verse 26, but we know that it was a part of their worship from chapter 11. We've already seen this. It's a key part of our worship every week. It's a way that we not only uh, hear the gospel, but we see the gospel. It, it tells the gospel story by enacting it. The body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed for us. And finally, the content of the church, the way that we tell the gospel story as we gather, is in our fellowship. Everything that we do in all of our activity as the gathered church, it is laced with fellowship, what the Bible calls koinonia, this idea of unity and togetherness. In worship, this act of worshiping, gathering together with the church week by week, is to form us and to shape us and to build us into a one-mindedness, into a unity, to really be able to look around the room and not see a sea of strangers, but to see our brothers and sisters, that we belong to Jesus and we belong to him together, that we're committed to Jesus, and though we may stumble and fail, his grace knits us to himself and to one another. It reminds us of our mission, our gospel mission in the world. You see, our activity as the church and all of it, in our singing and, and, and hearing the word and teaching the word, in the Lord's Supper, in our fellowship, in our praying, and all that we do as we gather, it is to reorient us to the truth of the gospel, to remind us of who we are, who we belong to, to declare who God is, what he's like, what he's done, what he's doing now, that he's really risen and reigning and living and that he will come again. And while the form will change in different times and in different cultures, some churches gather in a living room and others might gather in a building, the content, the substance ought to remain the same. And I want to just offer a word of caution here as we talk about the church gathered and the importance of the church gathered and the key of gathering around the gospel in all that we do, building up. I want to offer a of caution. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 that there are some among us, there are, there are those among us who will be tempted to forsake the gathering. It's an interesting word that the author of Hebrews uses, isn't it? To forsake it. To feel like it's unnecessary or not really needed. In other words, you forsake things when you don't see their value. You discard things when you don't see their value. And he's warning us, don't do that. Don't be duped. Don't make that mistake. You do not know how much this gathering is nourishing you and building you up until you forsake it. In other words, you are either being built up and strengthened in the gospel by gathering week by week, or you are being weakened by the enemy in the world. There is no neutral. It's one or the other. And so I want to encourage you, don't forsake the gathering. God has given this space to us to nourish us and to minister to us week by week. It's, it's kind of like this. You eat a lot of meals throughout the week, don't you? 
21 or more. Some of you may be less. Some of you more. You know who you are that eat more. You eat a lot of meals throughout the week. Most of them are unforgettable. I bet you couldn't tell me what you had for lunch on a random day this week. Some of them are memorable. You're like, that was an awesome meal. This gathering is the same way. Week by week, whether you realize it or not, it is nourishing you. And you, you might leave and, and they might, it might be a forgettable Sunday. Some Sundays might be extraordinary. It might be a forgettable Sunday, but let me tell you something. Just like those 21 meals that you eat every week are keeping you alive and sustaining you day by day, so are these gatherings. As we gather around God's word and we hear the gospel and we sing the gospel and we're taught by the gospel and we fellowship with one another. And so don't forsake the gathering. And so that's the first principle that we see from the text, verse 26. When the church gathers, if it's going to honor and reflect Christ, it must tell the gospel story and all that it does. Number two, let's get into the weeds. You ready? When the church gathers, it needs to worship in a way that honors and reflects Christ. If it's going to do that, it cannot be chaotic. Our worship cannot be chaotic. The Bible is clear from cover to cover that God is a God of order from cover to cover. He's a God of order. In the beginning, he is creating order out of nothing. In the beginning. You know, it, it's sin that actually launches the world into chaos, isn't it? It's sin that creates confusion and chaos. In the gospel, what is God doing for us in the gospel? He's reordering our lives. Have you ever thought about it that way in the gospel? He's reordering our lives. Through Jesus, we're learning what it really means and truly means to be human. He's bringing our, the chaos and confusion and brokenness of sin in our lives back into order. He's making peace between us and God, peace between us and one another. He's promised that he wants to use us as the church to bring peace and usher in peace into the world. And so God is not a God of order. And so Paul is telling us, God is a God of order. And so Paul is telling us that we must honor and we must worship God in a way that reflects who he is. You know, the Corinthians really needed this word, probably more than any other church. Um, there's, a, there's a spectrum of worship, right? Like, we don't need to get caught on the gutter in the gutter on either side. Like, there's reverent worship that almost takes it too far, and you wonder if people are even awake when they worship. Maybe you've been there. And then there's like worship that is a ruckus or a riot on this end. And the Corinthian church was over here. Like their worship was a ruckus. It was a, it had become a riot. And so what Paul is doing as he's landing the plane, as he's bringing renovation, he's saying, look, your worship can't be like a nightclub, man. Like that's not what we're doing. It's not open mic night. It's not karaoke night. You need order because God is a God of order so that people can be built up in the, in the gospel, not confused. And what Paul is doing in this text is he's giving very specific instructions to stop the riot that was the Corinthian worship service. There are three keep silence in this text. There are three groups that Paul is talking to who have taken their newfound liberties in Christ too far. And he's saying you need to keep silent. You need to you need to practice restraint with your liberties so that the church gathered can be a place of peace and a place of order in God's presence, not a place of confusion and distraction. Let's look at those three keep silence. The first is in 27 and 28. Look back there. Verse 27, 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret 
But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Practicing restraint, not taking your newfound liberty too far. I'm glad you have this spiritual gift and that the Spirit is manifesting in you and you have these uh, experiences, these words that you want to share. We talked about this last week. If you want to hear more about that, speaking in tongues, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But he, what he's saying here is, look, I'm glad you're having those experiences, but just because you're, you're having that, you have that gift doesn't mean you have to share it. Keep it silent for the sake of order. If there's no interpretation, keep it between you and God, Paul says. I want you to think about an elementary school cafeteria. <laughs> I went and ate lunch with one of my kids this week. Everybody talking at the same time. It's chaotic. I couldn't even think straight. I was like watching the lunch monitor. And I'm like, God bless you. You don't get paid enough for this. He's saying we can't all talk at the same time. Practice restraint. Keep silent in the church. Verse 29 and 32 through 32. It's the second keep silent. Be silent. Let two or three people, two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. You see the need for order? Like people are speaking, hey, I think God's given me a word that I need to share with us what he wants to do among us now. We know what he's promised to do. We know what he's done in the gospel. We know what he's going to, but let me share a word. And, and look, I know there might be a bunch of you that have words, but like, let's just go with two or three, three at the most. And, and, and then also like not all at the same time. We, like, keep silent, chill out, practice restraint, he's saying, so that it can be tested and we can discern and make sure that what you're saying, first of all, is true and aligns with God's word and aligns with the gospel, but also so that we can understand if you're all talking at one time over each other, it's hard to even be built up. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There needs to be order. God's a God of order. When we enter into his presence, it's a place of peace, not confusion and chaos. And then we get the third, keep silent, verse 34 through 35. Look at verse 34. And the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I want to give you two things that I promise are true, that are clear. For one, when Paul gives this instruction, he's talking to wives. So he's not talking to women in general, he's talking to wives. This is why he references submission in accordance to the law. He's reiterating what he's already told us in chapter 11. Do you guys remember my sermon on head coverings in the church? And, and he's, he used Genesis there, Moses, the law. He, he used the created order to make a case that men and women, yes, they're equal in God's image. They're made equal in God's image, equal value, equal dignity, but they're distinct in role. And we talked about the honor-shame culture in the first century world. He's referencing back to this. He's talking to wives. Number two, he's not talking about a specific kind. Uh, he's, not, he's not talking about speech in general when he says this. He's talking about a specific kind of speech, just like he's talking specifically about tongues and bringing order to the chaos of what was happening with tongues and with prophecy. He's not talking about speech in general. He's talking about a specific kind of speech that was taking place in Corinth. And now you might be thinking, 
listen, I don't know, Jordan. Uh, it reads pretty clearly. Um, this is why the Bible can't be trusted. This is why Christianity is archaic. It's oppressive to women. This is why we ought to just move on. Like, you know, this proves the point. Look what Paul says. Why, why would we even think there's good news in any of this? And I want you to know that Paul is talking about a specific kind of, here's what we know about Paul and Paul's view of women. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, he's already told us that women in the church can prophesy and pray. It's right there. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's already told us that they can prophesy and pray. In verse 26 of this very text, he says, when each one brings a hymn or a lesson or an instruction. The, the, the original languages in the text are very clear that Paul is talking about men and women. And so what is the speech that he's talking about? Well, the interpretive key to this verse is in verse 35. There are two words in verse 35. One is the word learn, and the second is the word shame. And I want you to know that the majority of Bible scholars, even across theological, different theological spectrums, all agree that the specific issue that Paul is talking about is a kind of disruptive speech that was happening in the Corinthian church, particularly women in the church, wives in the church, who are, uh, who are uh, either in curiosity asking questions or uh, perhaps in their newfound uh, freedom and liberty in Christ, um, challenging what is being prophesied, what is being spoken, what is being taught. This is what almost all scholars will say. It's disruptive speech, questioning or challenging what is being taught in the church gathering. In other words, they too are taking their liberty too far, these particular wives. They feel the freedom in the church to do something that would have not been tolerated at all in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, there's a quote I came ac across this week. I was going to share it with you, but I forgot. It's from um, Plutarch, and he basically, he quotes from, from first century culture that, that is instruction that women, wives in particular, are not to even speak in public. It would have been shameful in an honor-shame culture for women to speak in public. But yet in their newfound freedom in Christ, in the church, women are empowered and so they feel the freedom to speak, and maybe even Paul is saying, hey, let's get disruptive. Like, if you have questions, if you want to keep learning, ask those questions at home. Learn at home for the sake of order and for the sake of peace. And so what is, I like this interpretation. I think it's a good one. I think it fits. I think it fits with the, with the Bible as a whole. I think it fits with 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing to bring order to chaotic worship. He's not writing to disparage women in the church. And if unfaithful Bible teachers have proof texted this passage, if they've just pulled it out of its context and they've used it in a weaponized it in an abusive way, if you've experienced that, I want you to know that I'm sorry that you've experienced that. This is not the picture of Jesus's church. And so he's saying order, order. We, we need to worship in a way that reflects the peace and the order of God. One more principle. Verse, we see it in verses 36 through 38. So when the church uh, worships, it ought to tell the gospel story. It ought to worship in a way that's not chaotic. And it ought to worship and honor Christ uh, through humility. Worship that honors and reflects Christ is humble worship. Look at verse 36 through 38. Paul writes, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It appears that Paul is anticipating that some of the believers in Corinth would not receive well what he's been saying. And so he reminds them of a few things. First of all, are you the only people (laughs) that have the gospel? I don't think so. Um, If it weren't for me, you wouldn't even know the gospel. Uh, If you think you're smart and spiritual and you can just say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it, remember that what I'm telling you is a command from the Lord. I'm an apostle, Paul says. And so I think this is important because it reminds us of a few things. First, it shows us and reminds us of how prevalent and how powerful pride can be that in our flesh, we can easily start to make worship of God about us. We can want worship of, of God instead of it being about God and what God has intended this gathering to be. We want to make it about our preferences in our flesh and in pride. We are quick to want to make worship about our priorities And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul reminds them here at the end of the passage, worship is not about you. You need to enter into it humbly, submitting to God's plan and purpose, to his preferences in worship. We worship him after all. To his priorities in worship, we worship him after all. He must be the focal point in our worship, not our own preferences and priorities. And so as we make our, we've made, we've tried to make our way down the mountain of 1 Corinthians 11, through 14, here's what I hope we've seen. That corporate worship is such a gift. It is such an incredible gift. It, it exists as a grace to lift us up into God's presence. To lift us into his presence. It exists, it's a gift of grace that reorients our hearts and our minds around what is true. Listen, as we live as sojourners in this world, it is so easy to get pulled away into lies and unbelief, to come into this space, not even uh, wondering if God even loves us. Is he even really with me? It doesn't feel like it right now with what's going on in my life. Is his plan really good? Is he ever going to come again? Nations are at war. What's going on in the world, right? We experienced that this weekend. And corporate worship exists to reorient us in the truth, to lift us up into God's presence. This world is a confusing place. It's a condemning place. It's a callous place. It's a lonely place. It's a self-centered place, but not the gathered church. It is the place of God's people. It is a refuge. It's a sanctuary. It's an outpost. I want to end with this quote. I love this quote by Leslie Newbegin. I want to read it to you as we close. It's a beautiful reminder of what we do here each week. Newbegin writes, a community of people that in the midst of all the pain and sorrow and wickedness in the world that is continually praising God is the first obvious result of living by another story than the world, than the one the world lives by. That's what we're doing when we gather week by week. His people of his praise telling his story, modeling his peace, humility, love, order, until the day that he comes again and brings it in full. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of gathered worship. And I pray simply, Father, that as we enter into a time of response, that you would meet with us, that we would encounter your presence that you would flood our hearts with your peace, that you would reorient our minds with your truth. 
that you would nourish us and build us up with your supper, that you would minister to us by your spirit as we sing and as we pray and as we respond. I pray that you would use this space week by week to form us and shape us as a people who are undeniably living by a different story than the world lives by. Make us a people of faith, a people of hope, a people of love, a people of resurrection, we pray. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We invite you to meet us in this time of response. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.